G'day and welcome to Lunch Money, your online and social media home for workouts, special situations and capital raising professionals. My name is Nick Samios. I'm the fund manager and director here at Hermes Capital and I am your Lunch Money host. Thank you very much for making it along uh, to lunchtime on Mondays. We made the switch from Fridays and we're now fortnightly and we've got uh, plenty of people registering so uh, it looks like we made the right move. Um, the other day I was talking to uh, an old friend of mine, actually, uh, who is in the transport and logistics and warehousing and supply chain business. And um, he, I said to him, how are things? And he said, it's, it's supply chain Armageddon. And uh, I said, hang on, just hold everything. That is going to make a great lunch money theme, supply chain Armageddon. And so uh, without too much further ado, I'm going to introduce somebody to you who has been uh, working in supply chains, warehouse, logistics and transport across a bunch of industries, uh, agricultural machinery, heavy machinery, uh, and uh, fast-moving consumer goods and tech. But without further ado, let me introduce John Phillips. G'day, John. How are you going? Pretty good, thanks, Nick. Thanks for the intro. Uh, great to be here. Yeah, great. And now tell us, you are currently uh, with Kellogg's, you're the National yeah, so I had Logistics. The, so I had the logistics team for Kellogg uh, in ANZ, and uh, we're living in very interesting times at the moment. And uh, so what, what what's the sort of stuff that um, takes up most of your time of late in that role? Uh, look, um, Look, it's from a from an entire FMCG industry perspective. Uh, so none of the issues are Kellogg issues. Uh, they're all industry issues. Uh, and we really are in a situation where the supply chain at a local level and a global level is probably far more disrupted than it has ever been. Um, you talk to long-time industry professionals in freight forwarding, customs brokerage, uh, sea freight, air freight, road transport, uh, no one has been here before. There's no rule book. Um, it's every day is new territory. And of course, those challenges mean getting things done that would just normally tick over uh, are taking a lot of time and effort. Um, everybody's investing in tremendous amount of time and effort to to basically make things move. Okay, before we before we get into that, let me just position you. Um, as I say, you're a you're, you're obviously an industry expert. Uh, you're at Case New Holland or CNH, where uh, you're managing, uh, you know, uh, yeah, farm so. equipment, mining equipment, and construction equipment. Now you're also then you you were at Fuji Xerox, uh, managing great, tech so. equipment. So and 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 uh, and and now at Kellogg's, which is obviously fast moving consumer goods. So so that's that's. You know, I've, I think I've said somewhere 30 years plus, but I didn't want to age us both because we both <laughs> known each other for a long time. I think, I think 30 years kind. plus will do. <laughs> yeah, I think 30 years plus will do. But um, do you just want to talk just, just a little bit to that, that sort of broad experience? Uh, look, yeah, I mean, uh, supply chain um, management is essentially the same uh, across industries. It's just the, the details and the, and the factors and the driving issues uh, vary a bit. Uh, but... There are some very different underlying opportunities and challenges um, within uh, within different supply chains, and I'd, I'll use the my most recent tech experience with Fuji Xerox uh, and managing inbound supply chain there uh, versus in an FMCG environment. Uh, the value density of the goods. Um, so think about moving a pallet. Um, how much value is in the pallet? How much revenue? How much margin? 
if it's a very high number, then you've got a lot more options with uh, moving the product than you do in an FMCG or mass merchandise environment where the value is much lower. So your logistics costs um, as a contributor to your cost of goods sold and your productivity drive very different decisions and very different behaviours and give you well, well, a let, very let, different uh, okay, option well, let, set in a, in, a, in a challenged environment. Okay. Well, that's that. That's so. So obviously, the nature of the goods. Well, like we, everybody buys stuff on eBay, right? And yep. I don't know about you, but we're always looking for the free shipping, right? Um, so, so everybody <laughs> wants free shipping. Nobody wants to see those uh, logistics costs. And I, I want to talk. I want to. I want to ask you exactly what is going on. Like, why is it supply chain Armageddon? Uh, like, what what does that look like? And how did we get here? And is the whole system so fragile because nobody wants to pay for transport and logistics? Look, it's a combination of all of those. Uh, people ask me, you know, at a rolled up level, uh, what causes the problems that we've got today? The simple answer is COVID. And all of the grief that we've got can, in one way or another, uh, be sheeted back to the impact that the, uh, the COVID pandemic has had at a global level. What it's created uh, through a... a a pivot in people's purchasing behaviours and the response to manufacturers and suppliers to those behaviours has just created at a global level a congested network of, um, of logistics. So around about 20% of the uh, global logistics network's capacity, and I talk specifically here about uh, ability to move containerized freight, so typically manufactured goods, about 20% of that capacity has gone away today because of congestion. So in other words, vessels waiting offshore for extended periods of time before they can uh, get a slot at a terminal to come in and unload, uh, whereas normally they would be able to come in, unload and move on quickly. Uh, terminals congested with vast quantities of container traffic, which means they are far less efficient and take more time to process vessels and to move containers on and off the wharf. Uh, that's reflected in road transport networks and rail freight networks as well, particularly the US, uh, particularly in Europe, uh, the UK, where you can see these impacts right across the network. And effectively, if you take 20% of the capacity out of the system, uh, you're going to have problems. And that's 20% is out of the system because it's sitting in uh, in, in congestion. It's just it's it's sitting, up. waiting. Yep. Yeah. So that's so, so then, you know, again, as I said before, presumably the whole uh, supply chain, transport and logistics is extremely finely tuned. And so it wouldn't have taken much to upset in the first place. I've got a graphic here of, uh, of the ship that got jammed in the Suez Canal. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that seemed to be in, in one image, uh, seemed to, uh, it just came at the worst possible time. Um, I do remember, well, I mean, before, as COVID was happening in Asia, uh, but then before really the reality of it dawned on us, uh, you know, we, I, I, we had uh, 3PL, you know, third-party logistics clients, and their revenue just plummeted. And it, it always drops at Chinese New Year time anyway. Yes. Um, yep. But then all of a sudden, Chinese New Year was extended, remember? And then, I mean, is it is it that blockage that just hasn't, uh, unblocked or uh, actually, well, we, we, we've got another graphic. Actually, I'd like to talk to you. The, the one, well, the one that uh, demonstrate. It's got the pictures of the ships, um, the uh, visual capitalists. Yeah. So, so just talk us 
through that. Uh, that that sort of visually represents what's going on, I suppose. Look, that's uh, a pretty good representation of what's happening in uh, the Port of Los Angeles and Long Beach at the moment, and that's a great uh, temperature check of global congestion. Uh, but you're right, the Chinese New Year in 2020, uh, typically China shuts down uh, a big slice of its manufacturing capacity, and COVID hit at the worst possible time. The startup basically didn't happen, and uh, people across the globe weren't necessarily too concerned about that because as COVID hit, there was a lot of expectation that uh, expenditure would diminish. So the expectation was that we need to take volume out of the out of the logistic system, uh, manage capacity uh, in order to weather a, a storm of uh, a huge expected downturn. And of course, what happened was that uh, a lot of government expenditure, a lot of stimulus money uh, went into economies around the world. Uh, a lot of people retained their jobs and were unable to spend money on experiences, on going out, on travel, on theatre. And a lot of that expenditure then pivoted to purchase of physical goods. Uh, and that's everything from you know, PlayStations and toy drones to uh, housing renovations, um, new vehicles. And well, that, the, that's, that's that's a great insight. So what you're yeah. saying is, yeah. So so around the world, particularly, you know, people are there was all this stimulus money, and as you say, they couldn't spend it on uh, you know, right. travel or yeah. So they, they just bought stuff. Demand just came roaring back uh, yeah. at a at a rate that no one predicted uh, at at any level, uh, and a lot of the production capacity, or not even for finished goods, but underlying production capacity for components had been turned off or slowed down as part of the, when the pandemic hit uh, in the first part of 2020 and turning it back on, ramping it back up. Uh, that's not something you can do very quickly or easily, uh, but it was it was done and the, the, the global logistics network just didn't have the spare capacity to, to take that huge surge in volume and deliver it uh, in, a, in a normal timeframe. Okay, I think it's just worth going back to that graphic, the visual capitalist graphic uh, for a moment. I mean, I, I, you were saying earlier that you thought that this is a pretty good demonstration. You, you can see this is a, a graphic of the congestion at the Port of Los Angeles. Yeah. There's a great big block there that says there's 540,000 containers waiting in the in the harbour at the Port of Los Angeles. So there's 540,000. And for those watching at home, you can see that there's sort of a ghosted bit on the top there. There's 29,000 containers come arrive each each day. So in September, 29,000 containers arrive each day, but they're only processing 18,000 containers a day is the way I'm interpreting that graphic. Um, yeah, and, and Nick, that's a great example of, of the challenge. Um, Port Los Angeles and Long Beach is the major US port. Uh, it's the gateway into the US from uh, product from Asia. And the, the challenges there are a, it's just a, a great example. So the number of vessels uh, waiting offshore and the amount of time that they've been waiting has been extending month on month for uh, certainly the last four or five months. Uh, the volumes that they've been processing uh, and actually moving through the terminal have been increasing month on month and they've been setting records month on month. So it's not like they're not trying. Uh, right. It's just they haven't been able to, to keep up with that that volume and it's not just a case of unloading the ships you've then got to move the containers off the wharf and out of the port precinct uh into the inland rail network and the inland road network 
and that is heavily congested as well. So that has been slowed up uh, to the extent that the Biden government is now actually looking to take um, some executive action around uh, legislative measures, um, punitive measures, incentives, uh, including a, a trillion dollar uh, package directed at uh, supply chain and logistics infrastructure to, as a response to, to the issues that it's seeing. I mean, I wonder if the government can solve these sorts of problems. You're talking about uh, opening up the port 24 hours. I can't believe it wasn't op operating 24 hours anyway. I'm sure there's there's good reasons for that. But I can understand then how things are getting blocked up at the port. I mean, why are they getting blocked up on the roads and rails uh, downstream from that? Oh, look, quite simply, um, the, the capacity to move product off the port uh, is dictated by the capacity of the road network and the rail network. Uh, you can only move so much at capacity for so long before that becomes congested as well. So the US, there's a, a wide range of uh, manufacturing and distribution networks right across the country. Uh, and when they are at capacity, uh, when they're full of containers, they haven't got space to put stuff into warehouses. And part of the, the American problem is that they, they're a big exporter as well. Uh, so production from various places within the US, uh, they're struggling to get containers available and get capacity to move those containers back out uh, of the country and export them. Uh, and some of that's been driven by the fact that pushing all of these containers into the US and Europe has meant a shortage of containers in Asia. And uh, shipping lines have been incentivized uh, to move their empty containers back because that means they can get more product put in there and charge uh, what are absolutely uh, record setting rates. And that's why I've been one of the results of the congestion and the challenge is that uh, rates are now at record levels. Uh, and there are some eye-watering numbers out there on uh, the profits that shipping lines are making currently and will make into, uh, into 2022 and probably into 2023. And it's all on the back of service levels that are actually at record lows. Um, so, schedule integrity, um, arrival on time is at record lows, uh, dwell times are at record levels. Uh, it, it really is a huge challenge. Um, All right. Well, well, okay. So that's, um, that's, that's, that's sort of going to feed into uh, a query that I have about, I want to talk about inflation in a little bit. I know neither of us are, are economists, but uh, there are, as far as I see, there's at least three factors that we can talk about. But before we get to that, um, can you actually, well, well, I just, I'll just ask our producer if she managed to find a graphic on those chip pallets. You raised with me earlier that chip pallets you, you wouldn't be able to get hold of them for love or money. So there's a graphic here. Uh, Australian retailers are hoarding shipping pallets ahead of Christmas. Um, so tell me, what, what is going on with pallets? Oh, look, uh, Nick, the retail network uh, is relies entirely on product being distributed uh, on the Australian standard pallet, uh, and it's unique to Australia. Uh, one, one specification, it only applies in Australia. And part of the response of the supply chain disruption is that uh, many suppliers, particularly those bringing product uh, in from overseas, have increased their safety stocks uh, in order to be able to guarantee supply uh, with a very disruptive inbound supply chain. Uh, many, uh, particularly players in the mass merchandise area, 
who import their product have committed to import months and months, in some cases, 12 or 18 month lead times. They've had product coming in, uh, which has got to be unloaded from containers. They've put it on pallets, but they haven't had the sales that they would normally have uh, because of the lockdowns. So there are warehouses throughout the country which are full of product uh, and they're all sitting on pieces of wood, uh, right. the Australian standard pallet. And that spike uh, has increased at, at such a, a high level that pallets are now in, in very scarce. Um, they're in very short supply and they're having impacts across the industry um, with respect uh, to big manufacturers being able to manufacture. Uh, if you've got a factory uh, and you can't get pallets to put your finished goods on, then you've got to stop production. Uh, and that's impacted a lot of businesses uh, throughout the country. Now, look, you're, you're doing something there that I'm doing and we're clicking our pens. And I think we, we've got to stop doing that. Uh, so we'll do that. I'm going I'm to try and stop clicking mine. Um, now, just getting back to the the um, those pallets, I had a client years ago who used to refurbish pallets. Um, and I, I, he used to, so he'd get busted pallets would come into his yard every day. And somehow they'd end up going to the prison somewhere, Silverwater or somewhere, and these things would get re... But he used to say that he would have nightmares. He had so many of these things coming into his factory every day that if he didn't clear them out and get them fixed, uh, the next day they'd, they'd dump them all in. And I think he, he had nightmares of being drowned in, in busted pallets. But, okay, that's, that's fascinating that um, for, for a want of pallets, um, you, you, you can have manufacturing uh, seized up. Yeah, look, that's absolutely the case. And I think it's a, it's a great example of a risk hiding in plain sight that I think very few manufacturers or distributors uh, had really given thought or consideration to um, throughout the, the most of this year. Uh, and the, the constraints have really uh, been felt over the past uh, three or four months as we ramp up to Christmas. And of course, the volume of product going through the, uh, the Australian retail network uh, goes up. So the requirement for, uh, for pieces of wood to put all that product on goes up. And uh, that's when the impact's been felt. Okay. Now, uh, do you mind if we just touch on, I mean, I guess you've arguably, you know, in your sort of career, you've got three different industries that we might just touch on. Uh, with the heavy machinery, so the you said ag equipment, mining equipment, construction equipment. I know, you know, in our business, we deal a lot with mining services, and we've got some clients in ag, and certainly in construction as well. And the used, the price for used stuff has just gone through the through the roof. You know, yellow goods, uh, anything, everything, the price has gone through the roof. And of course, I think we've got a news article there about uh, car sales in Australia. Actually, I mean, the sales are are actually falling behind because they can't move this stuff. But what what is there anything um, in particular that you can talk to in that sector, stuff on wheels? Oh, look, the uh, the, the stuff on wheels thing, I think uh, in the commercial sector, what we do know with our, our service providers and just uh, throughout the industry, particularly on the road freight side, uh, is that uh, all of this demand is driving demand for transport services. Uh, trailer sets uh, are in very high demand and there is effectively zero availability. Uh, the local manufacturers uh, who produce trailer sets, and incidentally, we produce some of the best trailer sets in the world, uh, are looking at six to 12 to 18 month lead times, depending upon the, the type of trailer set that people are asking for. Uh, the rental companies, the hire companies are essentially got no equipment available. 
uh, it's all out on hire. Uh, prime movers, uh, again, in very short supply, orders being placed now. Um, we are talking with some of our service providers uh, earlier, uh, talking about uh, 2023 delivery. Wow. Uh, so it's that level for of prime constraint. Movers. For prime movers. Wow. Uh, and again, you know, it, it depends on spec, uh, but that's having a, an impact in the used market as well. So there's a lot of equipment that is being auctioned uh, at, at rates that, we were unheard of uh, a relatively short time ago. Um, on the on the passenger vehicle side, uh, one of the big constraints has been uh, production constraints from overseas, and a lot of that has been driven um, not by a, a logistics um, ability to move them, and they all those vehicles effectively sit on a on a different uh, logistics supply chain. But uh, at at source at manufacture, with a, a shortage of microchips. And so part of the pandemic has seen a spike in demand uh, for microchips. And on the supply side, uh, there are very few players in the market. And uh, one in particular, there was a, a fire, I think, in March or April this year in Japan, which uh, effectively took out something like 20 or 30% of supply uh, for uh, microchips from, from the whole of industry. And that obviously has a huge knock-on effect with, with vehicle manufacturing along with consumer electronics uh, and a whole range of things. That might be why your iPhone 13's uh, taken a while to get here. Well, yeah, I mean, look, we're, we'll segue into tech in a, in a moment, but uh, it is interesting. If, you've, if you have got to either wait until 2023 for a prime mover, uh, I, I appreciate it's not all prime movers, it's a particular spec, yeah. but you, you, you're going to go to the second-hand market and, um, and that's why we're seeing these insane prices uh, for, used, for used vehicles of all description. So just, just going on to tech, so what about tech? Yeah, I said to you the other day, I've ordered a new iPhone 13 and uh, I'm not sure I'll actually get it before they launch the iPhone 14. It's, it's, it's indefinite. It, it, they've got, I don't have a time for when that's going to turn up. Um, so is there, are there any sort of special, uh, well, you mentioned chips and what have you. Is there anything else specially affecting tech? Look, I think the, the majority of the tech uh, impact is around chip supply and a spike in demand for a vast range of, of products uh, and constrained chip supply means that um, manufacturers are pivoting limited supply towards product that obviously gives them uh, the most revenue and margin, uh, which means a lot of lower in product um, becomes you know, really constrained in supply. Uh, it's not so much, I think, a logistics function. Once the tech product is, is manufactured, uh, there's usually enough value in the product for it to be air freighted. And there is air freight capacity. You can move a lot of stuff around um, and expedite, uh, expedite the movement, uh, but it's a really a, a production constraint. And that's probably not going to go away in a hurry. Uh, expanding chip supply uh, is not something that can be done quickly and easily. And quite apart from any uh, COVID and pandemic impact or even impact from uh, the, the fire in Japan, uh, there has been a, a significant growth in demand for microchips in any event. Uh, more and more vehicles use more and more microchips and sensors and so forth. Uh, consumer electronics invariably use more. Each new generation of phone, each new generation of cameras, each new generation of tablets and laptops, etc. Uh, they're always more sophisticated. They've all got, always got more capability, and that means demand for chips is going up, uh, quite regardless of um, regardless of the impact of the pandemic. So you've got the the double whammy from a uh, a supply side with the the impact of the pandemic.
Okay. Now, what about uh, FMCGs? What, what sort of special challenges are they facing? Oh, look, the, the FMCG challenge uh, is the product, uh, I think, tends to be less susceptible to uh, huge variations in demand by its very nature, uh, but uh, supply constraint with respect to transport is, is the big piece. And uh, transport, uh, the cost of transport has gone up exponentially uh, over the past, certainly over the past year. Uh, the, the price of moving a container uh, at a global level, and it doesn't matter which shipping lane, um, where you're moving a container from, there has been significant unprecedented impacts uh, in the cost of moving containers. Uh, a, a container that might have been $2,000 18 months ago, um, if you've got it on a contract rate, if you can get a contract and get a shipping line to honour the contracts uh, with, with capacity and service, you, you're probably looking at uh, five or six thousand dollars relatively, and in many cases you're going to have to go to the spot market to move a container, and that might be ten or twelve or fourteen thousand dollars. Is that? Uh, uh, do, you, do, you, do you watch the Baltic Dry Index? Is that? That's uh, that's all that uh, stuff, isn't it? Yeah. So look, there's a lot of there's a lot of indexes. Uh, there's a lot of indexes out there, uh, and they're all indicating one thing, and that is uh, huge cost increases, and a big slice of that. Uh, you know, it produces some interesting outcomes and there's some tremendous winners in all of this. Uh, the shipping lines uh, this year uh, are on track to make in excess of $200 billion in profit, uh, right. the, the container shipping lines. That's more profit than the entire industry will have made uh, in all of the 21st century to date. Uh, wow. It really is uh, wow. It's wow. phenomenal. So just, just quote that stat again. Uh, shipping lines uh, on track to make... Uh, $200 billion or north of $200 billion in profit in 2021. That's more profit than the entire industry has made in the 21st century. Just amazing. Just amazing. It, it, it really is. All right. Now, before we get to um, how the government proposes to remedy or suggests that these this supply chain issues can be remedied, you mentioned a bit earlier about Australia's place in the global supply chain. Can you just touch on that? Uh, yeah, look, Nick, at a, at a very high level, we participate in, in three supply chains. Uh, one of them we're a monster in, we're a big player, uh, and two of them we're effectively rounding. Uh, and, of course, the, the supply chain that we're a monster in is, is commodities, bulk commodities. Uh, Australia's a big player, uh, huge supplier of uh, coal and iron ore, um, and we, we have a, a bit of a market maker in terms of the logistics uh, of that as well as the, the commodities themselves. Uh, and, of course, they, they run on their own supply chain, essentially, away from uh, manufactured goods. Um, yep. The second supply chain where we're rounding is essentially vehicles. So anything with a vehicle on it, uh, anything with wheels on it that can be driven on or off a ship um, sits in its own supply chain. But, again, we're a very small market. Um, you know, a million vehicles a year uh, isn't many in, the, in a global scheme. Uh, and containerized freight, uh, which some smaller volumes of commodities travel, but basically manufactured goods, uh, we are a bit player. Um, into our region, uh, global containerized freight, we would represent somewhere between 15 and 2% of total global volumes. Uh, we really are rounding. Uh, we're at a geographic disadvantage. We're on the way to nowhere. So shipping lines have got to commit to come to Australia <laughs> and New Zealand. Um, in order to come to Australia and New Zealand, you know, we're not um, sitting on the on the threshold of a, a, a major supply chain between two global uh, 
global nodes. Uh, so that in itself is, um, you know, adds a further uh, further challenge. And we've seen some uh, reduction in services. Uh, Port Botany, um, where uh, we've seen a reduction in the number of vessel visits uh, year on year over the, over the past few years. Uh, and then that's just an example of one of the risks and constraints that Australia as a trading nation has. Um, there's some exposure there around uh, our access to services and the, the flexibility of bringing product in and, of course, um, has an impact on our ability to export as well. All right. Now, look, let's uh, thanks for that. OK, well, let's just have a quick look then uh, at the uh, Productivity Commission interim report, Vulnerable Supply Chains. Uh, this was uh, the Australian Productivity Commission. Just before we get to that, um, I will remind uh, live viewers uh, that you can pop a question in the chat function there, uh, whether you're watching on LinkedIn, Facebook, or uh, or YouTube, or Twitter for that matter. Um, you can pop a question to John uh, while we're live, and uh, we've got some prizes for you. What, what do we get? If you are uh, the best question, if we get a question, gets a book by Mike House. Actually, they get two books by Mike House. Uh, all right. Okay. Let's go back to the uh, Productivity Commission uh, report. Uh, and they uh, made some suggestions uh, as to, well, firstly, let's, let's have a look at a couple of the graphics in that report that, that illustrate uh, the size of the supply chain. Uh, there's a graphic there showing us where, where our imports come from. China is uh, no great surprise. Uh, the next graph shows us what we are importing. And uh, as you can see, uh, you know, vehicles, heavy machinery, electrical equipment, uh, some of the things that we have been talking about. Um, and then the Productivity Commission has these suggestions uh let's just we've got a question here from chris george i've heard a client that uh, from a client that some shipping companies that usually have a ship every one and a half days are currently docking one every seven days concurrently one for every seven days concurrently uh thanks for that observation chris john oh uh, look uh chris i a good question uh and i think a lot of that is an example of what's happening for for a lot of players in the industry uh, the shipping lines, the disruption to their schedules, um, sailings are being blanked. In other words, a scheduled sailing doesn't occur. Uh, ports are being omitted within a loop because uh, of a delay in, a, in an individual port and they need to get back on schedule. Uh, and I think that's the sort of uh, the results that you're seeing. And, and we're seeing that uh, across, across the world and certainly at a local level um, and across trans-Tasman, um, coastal shipping within Australia, you get vessel bunching, uh, it's a heavily disrupted schedule. And what was a high degree of reliability around 80% uh, you know, reliability on schedule uh, reliability is now probably closer to 20%. Well, that, you know, that uh, did, what did you call it? Uh, shipping bunching, schedule bunching? What, yeah. What was that? Yeah. So it's, if, it, if there's a weekly service, you would expect to have, you know, one ship per week. Uh, yeah. What you're seeing now is that you might see, uh, three weeks without a vessel and then three vessels in one week. Right, like when uh, all the buses come at once. But, I mean, if it's, gone from, once. if it's gone from one and a half days to seven days, I mean, that's a, that's, that's a factor of four, which is, which is quite uh, incredible. Thanks for that observation, Chris. So uh, Chris has got a further observation. Also, ports being missed, e.g. Sydney, and then unloaded in Melbourne. Uh, and then the road freighted to Sydney. Well, that's going to – surely that's going to yeah. impact on the costs. Oh, look, that, that's, that's absolutely happening. Uh, and – 
the frustrating thing is that the shippers who have got the cargo in those containers, uh, you've got no say in that, uh, and often get very little notice of that. So, and then you just uh, you just get tagged with the bill, pretty much. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So just going uh, so back to no going back to the shipping lines, Nick. Right. Okay. So then just going back, we've got uh, this this um, uh, productivity commission uh, gave some suggestions uh, as to how people can manage their supply chain issues. Uh, they start and they've got uh, prevention. Uh, reducing the likelihood of disruption, preparedness, prepare the rest of the supply chain to mitigate the costs of disruption, response, improve the speed and effectiveness of the firm's response and recovery, uh, recover from the situation. And now the first thing, prevention, they're saying, you know, spread your location of factories, uh, choose suppliers that are less vulnerable, invest in risk management. Now that that might be something that you could prevent issues in five years' time, but you're not going to solve the problems today, are you? Yeah, look, I think, Nick, uh, it's probably fair to say that for most of these measures listed here, both in terms of uh, prevention, preparedness, response, uh, a lot of them are uh, long-term measures. And in the Australian environment, a lot of them are a whole lot easier said than done. Um, I think uh, at a global level, we are in the market in terms of manufacturing in particular. And... Uh, manufacturing at scale or sourcing at scale uh, is required in order to be able to get uh, a low unit cost and uh, moving those uh, having multiple suppliers um, means you're you know if you have one supplier and you split it to two you, you're sort of halving your order quantities uh, you're doubling your admin cost uh, so maintaining cost uh, across a lot of those strategies uh, is a challenge and uh, doing it quickly and maintaining it in the long term uh, is a challenge as well. Uh, I think in the um, one well, of the well let, let, let's let's have a look at just just that that graphic again. So 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 uh, so you were just about to say under the, under the mitigation. Well, so yeah, I think uh, the, the the easiest one, and I believe uh, that the one that has been most commonly adopted uh, is the preparedness piece, uh, the holding of additional buffer stock. Yeah, and, so just just talk uh, us through that. So so we were talking a bit earlier. You, you were saying that people have been rushing to, to fill up their their warehouses for but with buffer stock. Yeah. So if your uh, supply chain is disrupted and uh, your your availability of your product. Uh, becomes the certainty of availability reduces, but you've still got to supply your customers, then one of the first responses is to increase your safety stock, uh, increase your buffer stock. And across, I think, FMCG, across mass merchandise, uh, that's one of the measures that uh, has has occurred as a, at an industry level throughout the course of 2021 and is one of the drivers to the current pallet shortage. Uh, in that there's a whole lot more product sitting in warehouses in Australia on pieces of wood uh, than uh, traditionally have been at this point in time, and certainly far more than anybody had had forecast. Uh, sort of well, so there seems to be ago. there seems to be vicious circles in all of this. But actually, if we just go back to that graphic because I want to talk about some more points there. So, so building up buffer stock, as you said, for a start, it's taking. It's taking pallets, for example, out of out yep. of the system, and then that just creates more problems. It makes things worse, and it becomes a, like I say, a vicious circle. And the other thing, of course, is you know th there are holding costs. Of course, you know, when oh, you're there's absolutely stuff, you've there's, got, there's, uh, there's holding direct costs. holding costs. You're investing in inventory. Uh, depending upon the nature of your product, you're uh, facing increased uh, obsolescence risk uh, and potential disposal. Uh, you've got a whole range of of costs there, both. Uh, direct and indirect that are 
are a driver of, of doing that. Uh, but now, there's now, not uh, a lot of option otherwise. Yeah. Now, it also talks about have flexible manufacturing processes. But I just wonder, well, and I'm sure that's that's wonderful, of course, you know, uh, but I just wonder whether or not, you know, the Kanban system and uh, and just-in-time and uh, and all of these... Uh, all, all of these systems that, that look at taking costs out of manufacturing and taking costs out of logistics are what's made everything so vulnerable in the first place. Oh, look, um, a chunk of those systems have uh, contributed to the vulnerability. There's no doubt about that. Uh, interestingly, Toyota, who are the, the, the um, originators of the, the Kanban system uh, of just-in-time, um, a lot of that has been adopted, but probably not an effective way by many manufacturers across the globe in that they've made everything just in time. Um, part of Toyota's piece was that you absolutely do just in time on all non-critical pieces, uh, but you do try and have some contingencies around pieces that are absolutely critical. Uh, and that was reflected, I believe, in the course of this year where chip supply, uh, Toyota had identified as being a key critical component. So they had more buffer stock and uh, took longer to be as adversely impacted as many other auto manu manufacturers because of their of their approach. Thank you very much, John. Well, just by way of uh, wrapping up then, when is this all going to end? When are we going to get back to normal? I think, Nick, that's the, uh, the $64,000 question that everybody's asking. Uh, it's certainly going to be well into 2022 before there's any sort of normalisation. Uh, expectation is that the underlying cost drivers for C-Freight, which is really driving all of the cost increase, is going to extend uh, probably out towards the end of 2022 and well into 2023. Uh, I would suggest that it's probably going to be in the latter part of 2023 before any real sort of normalisation, certainly with respect to underlying rates, uh, is achieved. Uh, I would expect the congestion to be reduced uh, somewhat before then, um, probably mid to late 2022. But uh, there's a lot of experts made a lot of prognostications uh, over this, these issues over the past uh, 12 months or so, and we've all got it wrong. So um, that's a, a, an educated guess, uh, but it is a, a guess. So vehicle prices, uh, the, the price of a new car is not going to come down. Prices of used car, used equipment, et cetera, well into next year is what you're saying. Yeah, I think the, the underlying drivers around all of that are going to, are going to stay the same. Um, they're not going to go away in a hurry. Um, I think on the ocean freight side, which has really been the, the, the leader uh, or the driver of logistics costs, uh, I think we've seen peak um, We've started to see a little bit of heat come out of the, the spot rate market, uh, but we're talking, you know, very small numbers uh, in terms of, of reducing. The rates don't appear to be going up. Uh, what will be the the next uh, four to five months will be telling uh, as we get to the other side of Chinese New Year. And if we assume a normal Chinese New Year, a shutdown and then a ramp up after the, the two-week holiday, uh, which normally takes some time to flow through the, the logistics network, I think probably by Easter time we'll have a, a much better view 
uh, as to as to what happens. We'll wrap it up. We look forward to uh, seeing you all again soon. John, uh, I'd like to say thank you very, very much uh, for sharing your uh, expertise in the industry. Obviously, that expertise goes very deep and you've got a lot of technical knowledge there that, you've, uh, that uh, I'm sure we've only touched on the surface of. Uh, but thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for our viewers. Thank you to our podcast listeners and those of you watching us later on on YouTube. See you next time. Cheers. Thanks, Nick. Great to be with Cheers, you. Cheers, mate. <laughs>